your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8, if you would. Matthew chapter 8. And let's read together the entire chapter and ask God to speak to us. Read along with me. When he came down from the mountain, great clouds follow, crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant, servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom in, uh, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, and let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever he touched her hand and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, and a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me, and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast out, send us, cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go, 
So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. What are you going to do with Jesus? We're confronted with Jesus this morning. Healing lepers, casting out diseases, calling disciples, telling demons what to do. And we come and we, we, we meet Jesus. We see Jesus and we have to answer this question. What are you going to do with him? Let's pray and let's ask God to open our eyes to this text and most importantly to, through it, open our eyes to Jesus. Father, we do ask that we would come face to face with Christ this morning, that we would experience Jesus, and that we would not reject him, but that we would receive him. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The schemes of Scotland are very similar to the inner cities of America. Schemes in Scotland are projects. They are the Scottish version of our projects. And in the schemes of Scotland are uh, very similar issues. Drug abuse, joblessness, uh, crime. Now, as a result of, of this, uh, the, uh, the challenges are similar, uh, particularly as it pertains to the way we think of authority. Uh, so as crime is rampant in the schemes of Scotland, police often look down on those in the schemes and don't treat them very well and abuse their authorities, and that doesn't help relations within the community as it pertains to the police. Sound familiar? Um, a friend of mine, uh, Mez McConnell, works in uh, these schemes. He's a pastor of a church uh, in a certain scheme called Nidri. And uh, he told me that one of his biggest challenges is when, when somebody makes a profession of faith and they come to Christ, one of the biggest challenges for them is to, is to, is to recognize that they're now under authority. And also that authority is not bad. In our Sunday school class this morning, actually, Paul was talking about uh, authority. He was talking about authority as it pertains to work, bosses, etc., and one thing he said that struck me was that, uh, that because of history, recent history or uh, uh, history that goes way back, we can easily look back and we can see that authority is abused and has been abused. And then as a result of that, maybe you could say in reaction to that, so often what, what we do is not try to sort of like rethink, re-embrace authority, but rather we just abandon authority. And we think of authority as simply a bad thing because it can be abused. Therefore, we should have no authority. So, Mez, as he was explaining this to me, he said, so when I'm working with a, a new believer who just became a Christian, the first thing I tell them is this, you are now under authority. You're under authority. You're under the authority of the elders, you're under the authority of the church, and that's only because they respond to God, you're under the authority of God. You are under authority. 
You see, you can't be a Christian and not be under authority. In some ways, you can summarize being a Christian is putting yourself rightly under authority. The authority of not just anyone, but the authority of God. The authority of Jesus. I want to talk to you today on this theme. All authority. You might remember that at the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says what to his disciples? What has been given to me, Jesus says? All authority. He kind of summarizes the book. All authority has been given to me. Now I'm going to tell you something to do. We here come into Matthew chapter 8 and, and we see all authority in Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into it, here's my, my concern. When we think of American culture, we have to recognize that we are an anti-authority culture. We don't like authority. And by the way, this might go back 400 years, right? I mean, think about it. We didn't like being under authority, England. Peace out. Right? This is what it means to be American in some sense. We're a democracy. We don't have authority. We're flat leadership. We don't have to submit to anyone. Now, as a result, then, of the abuse of authority that we often see in culture, we are, in a, I think, in an era today, even more so than ever, reactionary and embracing an anti-authority ideology. So we think of the schools, some of you that teach in the school systems, you understand this. Uh, principles should not be slapped. That should just be a common, you don't slap a principle, all right? But it happened across the street. Not recently. Uh... Hall monitors that are just kind of chilling with students that are in the halls. Yeah, okay. We, somebody, we got somebody testifying here. Um, let me go on here, teachers. Uh, you know, I actually, uh, there's a local school, they, uh, do, they call their teachers by their first names, which is like not that big of, I mean, that's cultural but at the same time, it says something, doesn't it? Like, I even called my best friend's parents Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so growing up, you know? Um, the, or in the community as a whole, when we think of the two Ps, police and politicians, right? We don't trust police, and there's good reason to not trust the police. Yet at the same time, how do we respond to those that abuse the authority? Or politicians, we don't trust politicians, right? And there's good reasons to not trust politicians, and we'll just end there, right? Put a period on that one. In, in homes, children, honor your parents. That is like all kids have to do, all right? There's a lot that moms have to do. There's a lot that dads have to do. Kids have one thing that they have to do. Honor their parents. That's it. All right? How are we doing? Children, how are we doing? My kid's wonderful, by the way. 
wonderful. But you know, think of the media, the way we shape the ideology of our kids. Parents today, we're told that parents are dumb. We're told that parents, I mean, kids are told that, that parents are clueless. I mean, just watch some of the TV shows that kids watch today. Parents are idiots in these TV shows. I'm watching one with my kids, and I'm like, I mean, it's a fine show. Like, it's not like, nothing like strip immoral in it. But the way that the, the, the parents were presented, like the dad, there's some kid that's snuck into the house, and he's not supposed to be in the house. And so he hides underneath the, um, the sofa cushions, and you can see his whole body. And there's a sofa cushion sitting like this high up off the ground. And the dad comes in this dodo, like, doo-doo-doo, and sits down and is talking. And the kid's like, ah, you know. And then he walks out, and they're like, oh, we fooled him. What an idiot. You know, I mean, but this is what kid, like, what, what authority. Authority doesn't know anything. Anti-authority. Reactionary to, uh, to negative aspects of Authority. Now, here's the problem. This is really where I'm concerned. Christianity, often, instead of informing culture, Christianity reflects culture. That is the problem with American Christianity. We don't have a voice in culture. We just simply reflect culture. We mirror culture. We take culture's lead on the dance floor, and culture takes us all sorts of places. And so when we think of American Christianity as it pertains to authority, we could just simply say the same thing. You know, we pick and choose what Bible verses we want to submit to and understand and agree with and obey. Um, We just want to be my own man or my own woman. Don't tell me anything that the Bible says I'm supposed to do or that's legalistic. Um, the, the concept of like obeying elders or the concept of submitting to the authority, the God-given authority of the congregation, we just react to that. We just reject that. We say, no, that sounds like a cult. We've got all kinds of names. Really, all it is is we don't like authority. And it's not even about submitting to the authority of a local congregation at the end of the day. We're really just talking about the authority of God and the various means, the people that, that, that God has put in place. We're really, what we're talking about is the authority of Jesus himself, the authority of his word. Now, we can't be a Christian and be anti-authority. We can't be a Christian and not come, a, come face-to-face with Jesus and submit ourselves to him. Now, what's going on here in Matthew is just simply this. The king has been introduced. The kingdom has been announced. It's here. It's, it's, it's now. We saw last week, Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the king, the king speaks. He delivers his sermon. This is the way of the kingdom. Now what Matthew's doing, and he does this all throughout the book. You'll see this over and over as we go through the book. We see a discourse of Jesus. We see a sermon, words of Jesus. And then Matthew immediately then turns and he gives us signs of his authority. As if to say, this is what Jesus said. 
Now let me show you why you, you ought to be taking him seriously. Boom, 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 boom. Six scenes in Matthew chapter 8. Back to back, moving fast. It's like you're watching a movie and fast forward, all right? Six scenes that we fly through. And what Matthew is showing us is that Jesus has all authority and that we must listen to him. We must obey him. We must follow him completely. That's my goal for you this morning. That's my goal for me this morning as we get into this text. This, this main point is it's, it's simply this. There is no such thing as a half-committed volunteer in the kingdom of God. Jesus only wants fully devoted disciples. So therefore, we must understand that He has all authority and place ourselves under His authority and His authority alone. Let's look at it. Let me, so there's, Matthew kind of conveniently uh, groups these scenes together under themes. So I'm going to move fairly quickly through this chapter 8, and what we're going to see is that Jesus has authority over all sickness, over all society, over all storms, and over all spirits. And it's really all just to show us that he has authority over you and me. All right? So let's just move quickly. There's six scenes here, and we're going to move through each one of them. First, he has authority over all sickness. We see this in verses 1 through 17. When I used to work for a construction crew, my boss, his name was Ray. He was a boss. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was, he was a boss. And uh, we would get to the job site at 7 a.m. Every, every morning, and he would start bossing us around. And he would tell somebody to go lay that floor, Russ, go build that wall, Harry, cut out those steps. Joel, bring me that, two, those, that, that pile of two-by-tens. I was the unskilled grunt work, all right? My shoulders were bleeding by the end of the day, two-by-tens and two-by-twelves, constantly. And we were just obeying the boss. Now, if we didn't want to obey him anymore, that was fine. You just can't work for him. But he was a boss. Now, in the same way, all right, Jesus is not a, Jesus is a good a good authority, all right? He's, Jesus will never require of anything uh, of you that is for your harm, that is not for your good. But Jesus is the boss. And what we see here in this, this first section is that he's the boss even over sickness. So here what we're going to see is that Jesus, it's as if he says, leprosy, get out of here. Paralysis, you're fired. He just bosses sickness and disease all over the place. Let me show you these three scenes. Scene one, verses one through four. We see this issue of skin disease, of leprosy. Leprosy was very common in the ancient world. It was literally disease that would eat away at your flesh, and it was very contagious, and it was a very big problem. 
In Leviticus chapter 13 and 14, the law of Israel, which they are to be following, the law is very clear on skin disease. If somebody has skin disease in the camp, this is what you do. There are these specific rituals that this person is to go through to present themselves to the priest to offer these certain sacrifices additionally. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 10, in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, someone who has leprosy is an untouchable. Do not touch this individual. Now, on one hand, this is going to help. Uh, Common grace, it's not going to be passing the germ on, the disease from one to another. In addition, there is this spiritual uncleanness that comes with touching a leper. The leper is someone who is, in the law, according to the law, unclean. And if you touch the leper, the leper's uncleanness is transferred to you, and now you are unclean. So don't touch the leper. Similar dilemma. Going on in, in uh, scene two, or scene three. Let's jump forward to scene three. We're going to go out, out of order a little bit. Verses 14 through 17, we see here Peter's mother-in-law. She's sick. She has a fever. She's now unclean because she has a fever. Don't touch those who have fevers. If you touch someone who's unclean, let me say it again, their uncleanness will be transferred to you. And you now will be unclean. Look what happens in these texts. In that third scene, Jesus extends his hand and he touches Peter's mother-in-law who has a fever. Which, by the way, in a culture that looked down upon women, said a lot about Jesus. Amen? Dignity, value, purity. He reaches out and extends his hand and he touches the leper. When was the last time the leper was touched? Who knows? Can he even remember what it was like to feel someone else's skin on his own? And Jesus Christ, God in this world, reaches out and touches his hand against the skin of the lepers. Now what happens in each one of these scenes is, uh, is the reverse of what you would think. As the pure here touch the impure, The cleanness of Jesus is transferred to the sick, and the sick is made clean. The purity of Christ through his touch is transferred to the the broken, to the diseased, and the impure is made pure. Touch is a theme in Matthew. The touch of Christ restores, brings life brings purity, brings holiness, brings righteousness. Look at this scene right in the, in the middle of those two stories, the scene, scene 2, verses 5 through 13. We see a centurion now coming to Jesus. A centurion was a, uh, was, was a Roman soldier, official, supervisor. You guys remember last spring... Uh, when the riots were taking place and the government sent in a bunch of tanks and military and North Avenue and uh, um, the harbor were just sort of like barricaded by the military. Do you remember how we felt? We felt like, what, what's going on in our city? Like, 
I want my city back, right? This is kind of, not exactly, but kind of what's going on in Israel. So Rome is sending in their Roman elite. The centurion comes in, not with 100, but actually in all, historically it's about 60 or 70 uh, soldiers. And he, the centurion is a supervisor of this, this militia or this, this elite, um, what's a, Casey, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, unit, thank you. Uh, he, he, supervisor of a unit that's coming in. And uh, now, in addition to them being in Israel, and, uh, and they don't feel like they have any belong, the Israelites don't feel like they have any belonging there. Friends, remember, these are Gentiles. They, they might be from like Lebanon or Syria. These are Gentiles. These aren't Jews. Gentiles aren't hanging out with Jews aren't conversing with Jews. We're not conversing with them. No Jew, no good Jew would go into a Gentile's home under a Gentile's roof lest they become unclean. Certainly no Jew would ever heal a Gentile. This centurion comes to Jesus and he says, one of my servants is sick. Would you just speak the word and heal him? Jesus says, I will come to you let me come to him. Now what Jesus is doing here is something that's remarkable. He's saying, I will come into your house, centurion. Gentile, I'll come under your roof. The Gentile gets it. He says, he says uh, uh, in verse, verse 8, I'm not worthy of you coming into, under my roof. He knows the culture. No, don't worry about it. But then the Gentile says this, I know that you can just speak the word and he'll be healed. Look what Jesus says in verse 10 of this man. He says, truly I tell you, no, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Why does Jesus say this about this man? It's because this man understands that Jesus has all authority. This man understands that first he calls Jesus Lord. He submits himself to Jesus. And then he uh, explains to Jesus what he believes to be true, that Jesus can merely just speak the word paralysis, you're fired, right? And it's gone. Completely trusting Jesus. And Jesus says, and we don't have time to get into this, this is a whole different sermon, but Jesus says, this Gentile right here has more faith than any of you. And people are going to come from the east and the west. They're coming from all over the globe, and they're going to be sitting at the table of Abraham and you guys are going to be thrown into the pit. Faith. All authority. Now we understand pain. We understand sickness. We understand what it's like to have disease. Do you understand that pain, sickness, disease, all of that is part of the curse? It's part of the curse of sin. We're dying. Every cough that you get, it's just a reminder that you're dying. <laughs> I don't want to be, like, depressing. I'm just trying to be real. It's part of the curse. You know, we can get so hung up on the question of, you know, should we uh, be able to just touch somebody and they're healed? I mean, God still heals today. But I don't think the point of this passage is to just show us that God will extend mortal life for a time. 
I think the point of the passage is to show us something much greater than just simply the fact that God will temporarily heal you. The point of the passage is to show you that Jesus has the authority to reverse the curse of death. This is a sign that He has all authority to heal disease, leprosy, to say to paralysis, you're gone. He has the authority to reverse the curse. Secondly, Jesus has authority over all society. He has authority over all society, meaning Jesus demands absolute commitment. I'm sure most of you know that LeBron James right now is soaring through the playoffs. Amen? Come on. Um, They had a rough game last night. All right, first loss, not a big deal. They're going to recover. And uh, LeBron is ready to face Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors. And uh, I'm going to say he's going to take them in six. All right? I'm feeling good. Yeah, oh, I'm talking about basketball. Yeah. You know, they always tell you, like in seminary, don't use sports analogies. But the Cavs are doing so well, I don't care. All right? <laughs> Now, imagine we got into the finals, all right, that's the championship series, all right. We got into the finals, and um, what if LeBron James, who plays for the Cleveland Cavaliers, were to say, you know, I, wanted, I like Steph Curry a lot, I want to just play for the Warriors just one game, I just want to play with Curry one game. Is that all right? All right, Cleveland fans, I know we have some Cleveland fans in the house, How would Cleveland fans respond to that? What's that? They would would burn his jersey. Exactly. That's what we do, especially those from Akron. Um, We would not think very highly of that. We demand at this moment complete, total allegiance from LeBron James. He's going nowhere until the end of this season at least. Jesus demands complete allegiance from you. There is no such thing as just playing one game for the other team. Look at, what he, look at, look at this text here. Look at this scene 4, verses 18 through 22. Two people come to Jesus. A scribe comes to Jesus. A, a person who's referred to as a disciple comes to Jesus. You know, Jesus, by this time, there's a, there's a lot of hubbub around him. There, there's a lot of talk. And so there's these people that are coming and saying, hey, I think I want to follow you. So Jesus wants them to be, he wants to be clear, and he wants them to know what they're signing up for. He says to the scribe, are you sure? The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Meaning even foxes have homes. I don't. He's looking at this religious teacher. Are you sure? If you follow me, do you know what you are signing up for? He looks at the disciple who asks if he can follow him. And he says to this disciple, uh, or the the disciple says, I want to come, but first I need to take care of some family business. His dad died. He's got to bury him. And Jesus says something that leaves theologians scratching their heads, but I think it's fairly simple. What he's saying is simply this. Look, there is something much more than just this temporal need of, of taking care of this, uh, this burial. As important as that is, I am more important than even this. You see, he's not in any way uh, diminishing the value of burying your father. 
But no, he's raising his own value. He's saying, no, I require you follow me now. Don't take care of anything else. Drop it all and follow me now. Meaning this, stop making excuses. Stop making excuses for following Jesus. Follow Jesus now. Complete allegiance. Follow him with all that you are. Thirdly, we see also that Jesus has authority over all storms. So here in scene 5, we see this big storm that comes. And Jesus does something with this storm. Now before I get into this, let me say this. I was at Ivan Young's art show this last week. He graduated from Micah and he had his big show and so we're standing there in the room in the, this art gallery, and Ivan has this big pretzel-shaped uh, sculpture that he made. Now, I don't know if you've ever been into an art gallery before or at an art show, but you generally don't touch the art, all right? That's just, you're just not supposed to do that. But Ivan steps into the pretzel-shaped sculpture and just picks it up like he's picking up a tuba, you know? And I just felt like everybody's like staring, you know, they don't know that he's the artist, Right? What if I were to get in now and just pick it up and just walk around like, hey, guys, this is how you carry this thing. You see this? I'd probably be escorted out, right? But Ivan has the right to do that because he's the creator. So he can pick up his creation. In the beginning, God did what? In the beginning, God created what? Heavens and the earth. The disciples know that. Now, they're on this boat. Big storm comes. This is like perfect storm sort of stuff. Uh, waves lapping up on the boat, licking the side of the boat, uh, rain, wind beating into the sails. The disciples think they're going to die, and two things happen. First, the disciples wake Jesus up because he's sleeping, all right, which shows his humanity as well. Jesus wakes up, and then Jesus, secondly, Jesus starts rebuking everything, <laughs> which is exactly what I do when I wake up, all right? When... <laughs> but Jesus rebukes for an entirely different reason than I do. He looks at his disciples and he rebukes his disciples for having little faith. What does he mean? Well, the storm is still going on in this moment. And he's saying, oh, you have little faith. What he's saying is this, is even in the midst of the storm, I, you are required to have faith. You are re required to trust that I am in complete control of this storm. There is no promise that he will end the storm. And there is no promise that he will end the storm. The call is to have faith in the midst of it. But secondly, he does, for us, the sake of another sign, he looks at the storm and he rebukes the storm. He says, peace be still. And everything stops. Now, the disciples' response shows us the point of this scene. They, th their response is simply this. Who is this guy? If, if even the wind and the seas obey him, who is this guy? In the beginnings, who created? God created the heavens and the earth. And, I mean, we know that weathermen can predict the weather. They blow our minds sometimes. Sometimes they disappoint us, maybe more often than not. But um, in order to control the weather, you have to be outside of the universe. You have to be above the universe. This is saying something about who Jesus is. Jesus 
can control creation because Jesus is the creator. All authority. Moving on quickly here. Last scene. He has authority over all spirits. He has authority over all spirits. Because of movies like The Exorcist, we often think of demonic possession as sort of this, this scary kind of crazy thing, uh, which it is, but primarily this is where we're wrong. We think of it as sort of like this war between Jesus and the devil. So remember the movie The Exorcist and the little girl, her head's spinning around and, and there's like weird stuff coming out of her mouth and she's just really lost it. And uh, the priest is in there, and he's got this holy water, and he's splashing it on her, right? And it's not working, which, by the way, the Catholic Church should just take a note from that. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't do anything, all right? And he's saying, may the, but may the power of Christ be with you. The power, and it's sort of like Christ isn't really working here, right? Where is the power of Christ? What we see is when Jesus comes face to face with demons, there is no struggle. There's no WWF match going on, right? There's no fight. When Jesus comes face to face with demons, he just bosses them around. He tells them what to do. Look at the text. He comes face to face. These two crazy men. Look at the demons' response. They freak out. They say, what are, what are you here for? Have you come to torment us? Oh, we think of demons as tormenting or being the tormentors. No, Jesus comes to torment the demons, and they know it. The demons recognize his authority. Have you come to torment us? Please. If you're going to send us out, just send us into that herd of pigs. We don't know why. Maybe they like being in bodies. We have no clue why they request this. But Jesus grants them their request. The devil and demons, they, they do nothing without the permission of Jesus Christ. All authority, every bit of it is his. Over sickness, over society, over storms, and over spirits. What are you going to do with Jesus? As you come face to face with Jesus this morning through his word, what are you going to do with him? Well, unfortunately, the townspeople come face to face with Christ and they do the wrong thing. Verse 34, because of what happens here with the pigs running into the sea, the townspeople hear about it and they come out to meet Jesus and it says they see him. And I wish the text said, and they fell down and worshipped him. But look what it says. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Look, when you come face to face with Jesus in all of his authority, you've got two options. You either reject him or you receive him. There is no such thing as a halfway committed volunteer in the kingdom of God. You're either all in or you're all out. And friends, if you're 99% in, you are 100% out. You either fully receive him or you reject him. 
I wonder who you are in this passage. The townspeople who come face to face with Jesus and they're horrified to be this close to God. I can't take it. I've got to run. I have to pretend this didn't happen. I have to get on with my life. I have to ignore this moment. I have to ignore this experience. And we reject him. Or maybe you're the disciples on the boat. You've received, you, you believe you are in the middle of a storm. And there is no such thing in your, in your mind as faith until this storm is over. Jesus doesn't call you to wait until the storm is over to have faith. He calls you to trust him now in the middle of it. Or maybe backing up, you're the scribe or the so-called disciple that asked if they could follow him. You, you like the attention around Jesus. You, you even like the idea of Jesus. But when you begin to realize what following him means, following him in your marriage when your spouse doesn't, following him in your singleness when Jesus says the Son of Man doesn't even have someone to sleep with, are you willing to follow him in those places? Following him in your work picking up trivial tasks, doing all things for the glory of God, following him in your private times? Are you willing to follow him completely? Or maybe you are the centurion who has childlike trust. Jesus is the boss. He is the authority. Or maybe... You would say, you know, it depends, on the, it depends on the day. Or it depends on the hour or the minute. I kind of see myself in all of those people. And what you say is, I need a Savior. Friends, good news. You are not saved because you obey Jesus. God does not accept you because you do such a good job putting yourself under his authority. You are saved because Christ obeyed for you. You are saved because Christ placed himself 100% under the Father's authority. And his righteousness is donated into your broken account. His blood forgives you of your sins. Has there ever been a moment where you've cried out and said, I need a Savior. I trust him. I trust that his blood is enough to forgive me of my sins. I trust that he rose from the dead and that as I turn from my sin and as I trust that I am forgiven and that I have the promise that one day I will be risen with new life, living for all of eternity with him. Christ is our Savior. You are not accepted by God because you obey him, you're accepted by God because you are in him. But check this out. You know that you're in him when you are under his authority. That is the sign. I'm living under his authority. That's how I know. I'm seeing fruit in my life as we saw in Matthew chapter 7. 
I'm hating sin more. I'm repenting more. I'm confessing more. I'm following and I'm obeying more. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Let's go and let's, li- let's live for Him and for Him alone. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this time that we can be in Your Word. And we ask that we would live under the authority of Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.